Okay, so we're reading this morning from John chapter 8, verses 1 to 30. They went each one to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones first. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, Not one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I have come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in testimony as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing for him. 
And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we so thank you this morning that we can come to you. We thank you for the truth that you've given us in scripture. We thank you that you tell us that you never leave us. And Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus, um, your son who came into the world. We thank you for, for all that we can see in him and all that we can learn about you through him. And Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we see that he's shown to people. And Father, I thank you that you show that same grace to us. And so we thank you this morning again for the cross and for how Jesus died there for us. Father, I pray for our hearts this morning as we listen to your words spoken and explained. Father, help us to see how great you are. And Lord, to then go out and live lives that show that to others. Father, help us to understand this morning how much you do love us and how much you are for us. And Father, I pray for John right now. I pray that as he speaks, Lord, that you will um, use him and help him by your spirit. And Father, we pray again this morning for our whole church family, um, whether they're in this building this morning or not, if they're listening online or wherever. Father, we ask that you do work in every heart. That your spirit will draw near this morning and speak. And Father, that as a church, Lord, that we would honor you with our lives. And so help us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Julie. Uh, You'd be delighted to know, Julie, that you read about 20 verses too many there. Thanks. Uh, not your fault, my fault. Uh, see the way she paused there. She was about to come back and bother me, I suppose. But uh, not your fault, my fault. I forgot to tell uh, everyone that I had shortened today's uh, text. But yeah, so uh, good to be with you this morning in God's Word. We are in John chapter 8, making our way through the Gospel of John. And today we come across this story of a woman who has been caught in adultery. And the, and, the, and the main characters in this story are Jesus himself, the Pharisees and scribes, and this woman. And what we see here in today's text is possibly the greatest display of Jesus' grace and compassion in public. A lot of commentators say that this story is only matched by the story of the prodigal in its grace and its compassion and the way that Jesus is displayed as such in the New Testament. As I say, let's not downplay this. This is one of the greatest displays of grace that is in the New Testament. It's a harrowing story. Sometimes we can't put ourselves in the depth of the text, but it is a story, and I hope as we go through this this morning, we'll get the gravity of this and we'll get the weight of the story and we'll just see how good the, the ultimate goal of today is just to see how good and beautiful Jesus is that's that's where we're going and so uh, some of you will see in your bibles if you've got an ESV uh, like I do you'll see there's a, there's a little t- like heading above this text and it says this 
the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8.11. And that's right. Uh, some of the very first manuscripts that we have don't include this. But this story, this, uh, this narrative was added very, very soon after the formation of the canon of Scripture. We've, 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 I've looked at this this week and I've studied it and, and there's loads of reasons why it wasn't included and it was included in other Gospels and not included in this Gospel but then added. Uh, but the reality is I'm not, I don't have time this morning to get into the minutiae of why that is. The reality is we have this text in front of us. And it comes in John 8. And so let's just dive into the text, see what the text says, and see what God is going to say to us through the Spirit, His Spirit today. And so let's do that. Jesus is in Jerusalem teaching. It says here in verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Then early in the morning he came again to the temple. And there's something very interesting about that in itself. In the fact that everyone else, after the day has gone by, everyone else would make their way to their own homes, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We are now approaching Jesus' trial, his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And most commentators think that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives each night simply to be alone with the Father, to spend time with his Father in prayer and communication and just being with him. And there's a really just simple point of application for us in that in itself. Jesus obviously prioritized this. He, he obviously prioritized getting away from everyone else and spending time with the Father. How much more would we need to prioritize just getting away from everything else and everyone else and being with the Father? Jesus clearly prioritizes that. And so he makes this journey every single day from the temple to the Mount of Olives back again in the morning, and he's teaching. He's teaching. Jesus was probably teaching in the area on the edge of the court of the Gentiles known as Solomon's Porch. Uh, where actually after, interesting, I forgot to say this in the first service, interesting point that in the early church, uh, they went back to this place. The early church actually went back to this area of the temple to gather in Solomon's porch, and that's where they would have done most of their early teaching. And in, in the culture of Jesus' day, the teachers, the rabbis would have sat, I stand to teach, that's our culture. Uh, most churches, you'll, you'll have that, people stand to teach in today's culture. But in Jesus' day, the rabbi, the teacher, would have sat, and his hearers, his listeners, his disciples would have sat around him, and he's teaching. And it's into that, it's into that context of, of Jesus being in the temple, teaching his disciples. Just, just, just think about, just, uh, we really need to use our imaginations this morning. Just think about it now, like us sitting here. It's in that context where the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes come dragging a woman into the midst of here. Such a commotion, such an interruption. They bring her in, they throw her on the ground, and they say to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. What are you going to do with her? What are you going to do with her? It's very difficult, actually, for us to place ourselves in that scenario. But try to, try to. They come and they say this. 
The, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone her. What do you say? Right. Let's just break this down and go through it bit by bit. First of all, she was caught in the act of adultery. That doesn't just happen. The Pharisees and the scribes had set this up. They had planned this meticulously. There was a lot of work had went into this so that they could get this test case to Jesus. They had set it up. They had carefully planned it. They planned to entrap this woman so that therefore they could bring her to Jesus and entrap Jesus. It's all a setup. It's all a setup. It wasn't some just circumstantial uh, inquiring of this innocent rabbi about this innocent case. No, it's all a setup. Now, I've started to watch Line of Duty. I know I'm late to, the, late to the game, but I've started. And so I'm thinking everything's a setup. I think this is a setup, by the way. I think there's, there's somebody going to come through the door at any stage and sort the whole thing out. But make no mistake, this is all staged. All staged to get Jesus. Interestingly, it is just the woman that's brought. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Well, Don Carson says this. The act of adultery is never carried out in splendid isolation. The act of adultery is never carried out in splendid isolation. There was a man. Where's he? Why did they not bring him too? Because actually the law, God's law says this. In Leviticus 20 verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, must be put to death. Where's the man? You see, these guys, these scribes, these Pharisees weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in upholding God's law. They were interested in trapping Jesus. That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. They didn't care that, that they were going to cause this woman probably irreparable damage. They didn't care about that. They actually didn't care about God's law. All they were interested in was catching Jesus out. And so they bring this woman and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, now the law, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such woman. Not actually true. Not actually true. Stoning wasn't specified for all cases of adultery. The law of Moses doesn't specifically say that. It might be implied. But it's only ever implied in the case of someone when they are engaged or betrothed to someone. The most common, the most common uh, punishment for adultery was divorce and financial reimbursement of the wronged party. That was the most common uh, outcome. Stoning was not specified in all occasions. 
in very few, in fact. And so they come to Jesus with this trumped-up charge, with this set-up situation, and they want to go to the extremes. Why? Because they're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to catch him out. And then Jesus does something rather unbelievable. And it's a lesson. The first thing is a lesson probably for us all. Uh, the accusers come to Jesus and they demand a response right away. Jesus, what are you going to do? What should we do? Give me a response. And he doesn't respond straight away. Now, if there was ever a lesson for us all in that, that's, that's a good lesson. Don't respond straight away. Think about it. Contemplate it. Then respond. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they, kept, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, there is so much speculation around what Jesus was writing on the ground. And the reality is, to say anything of what Jesus was writing on the ground is simply guesswork. It's conjecture. We're not told. We don't know. And so anything I say on this, on this is simply that, conjecture. We don't know. If it had been really, really important to the story, it would have been included. But he does something. Jesus writes something. So let me give you a couple of suggestions of what Jesus was writing from commentators that I've read this week. The first one was this, that Jesus, when they, they come, they throw the woman in front of him. And they say, the law of Moses tells us to stone this woman. What do you say? The first thing that, that or well, some of the things that commentators say is this, that Jesus got down on the ground and started to write out the sins, the specific sins of some of the, the Pharisees and the scribes that were bringing this woman to Jesus. Now, that would have been rather embarrassing. All of a sudden, you have come and you're accusing someone else of sin, and all of a sudden, on the ground, it would have been cobblestones covered with dust. That's, what, that's the surface. All of a sudden, on, on the ground, for everyone to see, is some of the very deepest, darkest sins that you have committed. And so it would make sense for them all of a sudden to drop their stones and walk away. That's one theory. The other theory, which I probably think is more plausible with the follow-up question that Jesus said, asks is this. Jesus gets down and starts to write out the Ten Commandments. Who knows the Ten Commandments better than anyone? The scribes and the Pharisees. And so he starts to write them out. And there's a realization that the, the Ten Commandments are the absolute litmus test of how sinless you are. And as Jesus starts to write out the Ten Commandments, there's a realization comes over the, the Pharisees and the scribes that, oh, we're not as sinless as we think we are. And so they walk away. The Ten Commandments are the litmus test, aren't they? They're the litmus test of how sinful we are. That's what they do. That's their purpose, actually. I remember when, we, when I used to do youth talks and stuff, uh, we went to youth fellowship and we would have 
we've got the, the youth leaders up to the front. And we'd have been talking about sin and trying to convince people that they're sinful is, is sometimes hard, believe it or not. But uh, we would have done this. We would have got the youth leaders up to the front and we would have said, right, okay, uh, we want to show you that you're sinful. We want to show you actually that your youth leaders here are sinful. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Ten Commandments and, and we're going to see if your youth leaders here can, can uphold the Ten Commandments. And so we would have started going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, do you, have you kept that one? Nope. Have you kept that one? Nope. Have you kept that one? No. And so it will go on and on and on again. The point being to prove that, that youth leaders can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Who would have thought? But the reality is, none of us can keep them. None of us. Every single person in this room has broken God's law. And so when the realization of that came over these Pharisees and scribes, their attitude changed. They dropped these things that they were going to fire this woman to kill her, and they walk away. And then Jesus, being Jesus, stumps them completely. If any of you is without sin, far away. If any of you is without sin, just go on ahead, full permission, start stoning her. Now, this verse has been used wrongly to suggest that no one can ever be condemned of anything. That's wrong. Think of our modern-day laws. If you break the law, you get punished. And it was the same with God. It was the same with God's law. If you broke the law, you would get punished. So it doesn't mean if anyone... I'm sure the people who were carrying out the justice in the Old Testament were, were sinful people. Just, so it doesn't mean that. But what, so what does it mean if anyone was without sin? Without sin, there's a fancy Greek word here, which I don't know how to pronounce, so I'm not going to try but it literally means without sin, not having sinned. And what it seems to refer to, and what I can gather, what it seems to refer to is this. If someone has a, a special interest in or a conflict of interests in the case, they can't be the ones to condemn. They can't be the ones to pass judgment. And who has a special interest in the case? Who has a, a conflict of interest in this case? The Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because they're doing it for one purpose and one purpose only, and that purpose is to catch Jesus. It's not to seek justice for the woman or her wronged husband. They have a conflict of interest. And, and we see that in today's law as well. If there's a juror, uh, if there's a case going on, and there's a juror has a conflict of interest, what are they to do? They're to recuse themselves, take themselves off out of jury service. That's what they're to do. And it's a bit like Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he says this. Unless you have removed the whopping great plank from your eye, don't go start looking for the specks in other brothers' and sisters' eyes.
The throwing of the first stone was a reference to God's law, God's requirement. And it comes from Deuteronomy. It says this, You who heard the blasphemy must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. So in God's law, it was the actual person who witnessed whatever wrong happened. It was them that had to cast the first stone. In Deuteronomy 17, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. Not, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge yourselves from the evil among you. But you see, here's the problem with this case. The hands of the witnesses were the Pharisees and the scribes who had a conflict of interest and therefore could not condemn the woman and who could not throw the first stone. They were they weren't without sin. And let's go back just for a moment to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Be careful when you're judging others. Be careful that you remove the plank from your own eye before you look for the speck in someone else's. You see, all too often, we find ourselves with this problem. There's an old saying, and it goes something like this. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I don't need to explain that to you. It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about us. We all live in glass houses. We all live in glass houses. And unfortunately, we are often the ones with handfuls of stones ready to condemn. What's your first thought when you hear of someone when they have been caught in sin or have done something wrong? What's your first thought? Where does your thought go? Does your thought go to condemn them? Does your thought go to gossip about them? Does your thought go to, I must tell someone else about this? Does your thought go to, oh, they're terrible? Does, where does your thinking go? Because Scripture, I think, would, would, would lead us to, to consider that our thinking should go to, am I guilty of this very thing? Am I the one who is guilty of the very thing that I am just about to condemn someone else for? Be careful, Jesus says. Remove the plank from your own eye first so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sisters. Check if you're not guilty for the exact same thing. Let's just use this case as a test case. Adultery. Where would your thought pattern go if you heard that someone was caught in adultery? Would it go to condemn them? Would it go to gossip? Or would it go to check yourself to see if you were guilty of the very same thing? Because let's see what Jesus says about adultery, for example. What does Jesus say about adultery? Jesus says to the man, he says, 
If you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery in your heart. He says the same to the woman, by the way. Check yourself. Check myself. Before I would rush to condemnation. Before I would rush to judgment. Before I would rush to, to gossip. Check yourself. Are you guilty of the very same thing? See, the Pharisees and the scribes brought this woman to Jesus. And I have no doubt they were guilty of the exact same thing. Jesus then utters some of the most outstandingly gracious words in Scripture. They just are. You you don't get better words than these in Scripture. When they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus just, I find that very interesting, that wee bit there where it says beginning with the older ones. Maybe the older ones had more sense. I don't know. Davy Smith, after the first service, that's what he took out of the first service, that the older ones have more sense. I said he was the exception, but maybe it is because they have more sense. And they realized first, oh, we're condemned here too. Let's just move on. So the older ones leave and the younger ones hang around because they're more fervent. You'll find usually they're more entrenched in their views. And so they're hanging around and then eventually they dander off as well drop their stones and move on. And here we have in this courtroom Jesus, the creator of all things, the Savior, the Messiah, with this sinful woman. And what does he say? Where are they? Where are your accusers? She looks up, they're gone. Nowhere to be seen. And Jesus says, who has condemned you? She says, nobody. And then the most beautiful words, nor do I condemn you. This woman has been the defendant in the case. As I said, she's now alone with Jesus. None of her accusers are there. None of the witnesses are there. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I'm sure it took some courage for that lady to look up when Jesus said to her, look up, where are they? Imagine the shame. Imagine the the chitter chatter throughout the rest of the temple. This girl had been damaged for life. Just try for a moment to put yourself in her shoes. It took some courage for her to look up to see if her accusers were still there. And when she looked up, she didn't see them. All she saw was the face of Jesus. And the Son of God simply says, neither do I condemn you. That's weird and strange. This woman, 
I don't know if you've noticed, but what I'm trying to get you to do is think compassionately towards the woman. This woman has been caught in adultery. Caught. No questions asked. Caught. She deserves punishment. She deserves the wrath of God's law. And here is the Son of God saying, I don't condemn you. Is God himself, is Jesus actually going against his own law? Is he violating his own law? How can it be just? How can the Old Testament law be just? And Jesus say, listen, forget about it. Just move on. She was caught. She had sinned and been caught in it. John Plume, who writes for Desiring God, put it way better than I could. And this is what he says. Here's where the good news gets really good. God fully intended for this sin of adultery to be punished to the full extent of the law. But she would not bear the punishment. She would go free. This young teacher, this young rabbi would be punished in her place. The words of Isaiah come to mind. Isaiah 53, it says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. Like all we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Folks, every single one of us in this room is the woman. We are the woman. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath of God to come upon us. All our lusts, all our destructive tongues, all our hated thoughts, all our corrupting greed, all our covetous pride deserves the wrath of God. We are the woman. We stand exposed before God. Our condemnation is deserved. And yet, follower of Jesus, you are trusting in him. Jesus speaks these words to you. Neither do I condemn you.
because he has been condemned in our place. All of your guilt, all of your sin has been removed. No stone of God's righteousness will crush you because he was crushed for you. You see, I said it a couple of weeks ago and I said it again. Jesus was the only one in the crowd, the only one who could in all righteousness condemn this woman. And Jesus was the only one in the crowd who in all righteousness would give himself in her place. Grace, mercy, and compassion triumphed. And the same is true for you if you're in Christ. My favorite verse in Scripture is Romans 8 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you need to hear that. Because some of you are still carrying the weight of your own sin. And you are condemning yourself on a daily basis. Punishing yourself on a daily basis for sin that is no longer yours to carry. In your place condemned, he stood. Do you believe that? Do you genuinely believe that your sin, all of it, all those wrong thoughts, all those wrong words, all those wrong deeds, in the past, in the present, and in the future, are covered by the grace of Jesus? This is the good news of the gospel, folks. This is the good news of the gospel. And I desperately want, through the power of the Spirit, for us all to believe it and not carry it. And you know why I desperately want that? Because sometimes I do that very thing. Carry the weight. Carry the weight of my sin. Look at myself and think I'm a dipstick. Anybody else? No? Nema. We, yes. But that's what I do. And I know you do it too. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that it takes that off us. It just takes that off us. And we can be forgiven. And we can know the love of Jesus. And we can know our Father in heaven. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, your grace for us is... It's just, we can't comprehend it. We can't get our heads around it. There's no way we could ever fathom it. That the beautiful sun would stand in our place. The perfect spotless Lamb of God. The gospel is amazing. Your grace is amazing. That saves 
wretches like us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move. And I pray that you would just root these truths deep down in our hearts. You love us. You're for us. And through Jesus, you can forgive us. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, And in communion, really just what we're doing is remembering just that. Remembering the gospel. Remembering the good news. How good it is. Physically having elements that show us who Jesus was and how he gave himself for us, his body broken and his blood shed. And so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, just glory in it. Glory in the cross, glory in the gospel. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, consider why not. Why? He loves you. He has given himself for you. And you could have all the weight of your sin and guilt removed today. Please, please, please come to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness, repent of sin. But I lovingly ask, if you're not willing to do that, then don't take communion with us. You would be proclaiming something that doesn't make sense to you. Let's worship. Let's share in communion together.